chapter 4, Lord willing, this morning and move on into chapter 5. These uh, two, kind of the beginning of chapter 5 and the end of chapter 4 go together, and so we're going to look here at how God deals with, with sin in a very dramatic fashion here in, in his church, and hopefully I know our hearts will be encouraged as we read his word together this morning. And if you're able to, if you would stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together. I'll begin in verse, again, uh, chapter 4, verse 32 from the English Standard Version. Luke writes, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or of houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Then great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. You may be seated. May God encourage us and strengthen our hearts this morning as we read these words. And Heavenly Father, we are mindful of your great grace this morning the grace of salvation, and yet at the same time, we're, we're aware of, of sin. We're aware of sin in our culture. We're aware of sin uh, all around us. And, and of course, this morning, Father, we pray for the, the people who are in positions of authority to deal with sin, uh, mayors and, and governors and state legislatures. We pray for our president. We pray for uh, wisdom for, for him and for other men and women in positions of leadership at the national level and at state levels. And and Father, we, we pray for, for sin out in the world and those that you have sovereignly placed in positions to deal with it, they, they would be able to do so. And yet, Father, this morning our, our heart's attention is also on sin within our church, within your body. 
Father, we pray that you would convict us of sin. We pray that each of us individually would, would become aware of sin, even as we prepare to partake of your supper here as, as our morning concludes. We pray that our, our hearts would be made aware of sin and you would help us to be repentant. And we pray that, that you would also help us to have a, a boldness and a willingness to confront sin that we encounter in not just our own lives, but, but lovingly confronted in, in the lives of others. We pray for your grace as we do so. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, as we look at this, your word. Amen. Some years ago, there was a professor from Southeastern Seminary, and, and he was traveling in Missouri, and he was preaching at a, a small church in uh, Kearney, Missouri. And as he was there, the, the pastor of the church began to tell him about the church's most infamous member. Apparently, in the 1860s, Jesse James, the, the famous outlaw, had been a member at this church. I think it was 1866, so after the Civil War, James was done fighting the Civil War, and he, he came to Missouri. He came to this church, back to his uh, family's home, uh, was staying with his mother. And in 1866, he was baptized and became a member of this church. And some months go by, and, and people in the church begin to hear rumors of the activities that Jesse James was now involved in. There was a story that connected him with a bank robbery in a nearby town where, where someone had been killed, an innocent bystander had been killed. Then the next year, there was a, another, another bank robbery where, where things had gone badly, and several people were killed, including the mayor of the town. And these stories continued to, to pile up, stories of, of robbery and theft and sometimes even people being, being murdered. And the church was concerned about the status of, of Jesse James's membership, and they met on a Sunday evening to decide what to do. And according to reports from the time, they were a little nervous because some members feared that James and his gang would show up and burn down the church. So you can imagine the meeting in the church was a little tense as they discussed, what do we do about Jesse James's church membership? And eventually the church, as they discussed it, decided to commission two deacons to go to his mom's house and see if they, they could find James there and, and confront him on, on his sin. And can you imagine how nervous the deacons were? They showed up the next day, Monday morning, and, and his mother told these deacons that he was not there. And you can imagine that the deacons, I'm sure they were very good men, but may have felt a little bit of a sense of relief not having to to confront a notorious outlaw about the status of his church membership. And in fact, uh, perhaps much to the relief of the entire church, I think it was in September of that year, Jesse James came to the church personally and withdrew his membership. Now, is that a controversial idea that a practicing outlaw a notorious outlaw and murderer should not be a member in good standing at a church. It is kind of a controversial idea because some would say, you know, why can't an outlaw be a member of a church? Why can't, specific, a, a practicing outlaw be a member of a church? And what we're going to see over the next two weeks is that the, the presence of unrepentant sin within a church is a danger. That the presence of unrepentant sin within a church is a danger both to those within the church and those outside of the church as it harms our gospel witness. And we're going to be looking at the next two weeks of, of the process that God has given a church by which we can deal with unrepentant sin 
within our, our walls, obviously, metaphorically speaking, on a day like today, right? How do we deal with sin within the church? God has given us a process by which we do so. And that process by which we, we deal with sin within the church is a process we call church discipline. That's not a, a biblical phrase, but it's a, a phrase to describe a biblical process, the process of church discipline. This process of God gives us to deal with sin in, in our lives and the lives of other people in the church because sin is a danger. And this process of church discipline, if if the process continues, if there's not repentance, can end in something we call excommunication. That's, that's removal from fellowship of the church. So what I want us to do is, is to realize that this process of church discipline is not a process that is uniformly practiced by all churches. In fact, many churches approach the, the church discipline in a, in a wrong way. Many of us as, as Christians approach this in a wrong way. Uh, some churches have really no conception of real church membership and, and no practice of church discipline. Sin goes un, undealt with in a church, and an individual simply shows up in an assembly of, of professing believers and says, well, I'm a part of this assembly. And then whenever they decide they no longer want to be a part of that assembly, they say, okay, well, I'm, I'm no longer a part of this assembly. And there's no, there's no dealing with sin. There's no way in which to hold people accountable as, as a body. Really, the authority lies with every individual person to determine their standing in the church. And so there's just kind of a, an elevation of the autonomy of the individual, that the church collectively has really no authority over the lives of individual believers. And I don't believe that's a very biblical process, as we'll talk about, especially next week. Another way in which churches practice church discipline poorly is a church might have kind of like on their bylaws or some church documents, a process by which they would deal with, with sinning members, and yet it's, it's all theoretical. People are, are too timid. There's no culture of relationship and discipleship in which sin is actually talked about and discussed. And so even though there's on paper a way to deal with sin, it seems like no sin ever gets to the level of really getting dealt with. There's no real discussion of sin, and so functionally, that church also never really deals with sin within its within its within its uh, membership. And of course, another wrong way that the churches sometimes practice church discipline is whenever they they practice it in a very arbitrary way. So this church might wield discipline as a means of control or or squashing those who might challenge church leaders or, or dealing with church conflict by just. Uh, putting opponents in church discipline, and they, they wield, or a church might wield it very arbitrarily for, for some sins, and, and yet other sins they just kind of wink at, or they might remove any sort of process of restoration or hope for a person, and so it's, it's not a very biblical process, as God would understand church discipline. Again, we'll talk more about that next week. But what I want to focus on this morning in this text is, is to see that here in this passage, God takes sin within his church very seriously. I want us to look at this text specifically and grasp the importance of removing sin from within the church. This week is kind of why do we deal with, with sin within a church. Next week is going to be more about how. How do you remove, for example, an outlaw? But this morning we're looking at, at why. And the main thing that I want you to grasp, kind of the main point that I want you to, to write down this morning if you're taking notes, 
is, is this. The, the church's removal of a person from fellowship is a gracious warning of God's judgment of sin and sinners. The church's removal of a person from fellowship, again, the word we use there sometimes is excommunication. The, the removal of a, the churches, the, the church bodies, removal of a person from fellowship with that church is a gracious warning of God's judgment on sin and sinners. It's a gracious warning to the person who's sinning. It's a gracious warning to the church. It's a gracious warning to the world who's watching. Church removal, excommunication, this process of dealing with sin, up to and including excommunication, is really God's grace. It's a warning of God's judgment on sin and sinners, and we'll continue to talk through that next week, but here we're going to see the, the why, why we deal with this. And here's, here's two things I want us to look at. We're going to look at the end of chapter 4 and the end of chapter 5. As we look at the end of chapter 4, we're going to see that the genuine believers produce healthy fruit within the church. So we're going to kind of see a, a positive of what the church should look like. And then we're going to see the, the poisonous the poisonous fruit that's produced by false believers. So first of all, let's talk about genuine believers and how they produce healthy fruit within the church. Look at verses 32 through 37. Look at your text there with me if you would. Notice as we begin looking at this end of chapter 4, that the testimony of the church is being lived out in this, is this incredibly beautiful and practical way. It begins by telling us in verse 32, at the beginning of the verse, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And so all of the believers, the, the genuine believers, those who had placed their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, those were of, of one heart and one mind. There's unity among those who had truly believed the gospel. And it's not just lip service, it's not just Luke claiming that, that unity is lived out in a very practical and evident way. Look at the last part of verse 32. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Now, there have been some ways we've misunderstood verse 32 and the things that follow over the years, over the centuries, right? One way, some people have looked at this, this verse and said, okay, well, uh, this must mean that, uh, that the early church was kind of like a, a, a communistic state or, or some sort of socialist utopia, right? And so we, we shouldn't have property rights, and, and it's, it's led some people to come to some very adamant conclusions about the role of government and coercion of private property and things like that, and, and uh, hey... There's a place for political debate about how a government should be stru structured and so forth. Have that debate. That's great. This isn't the text for you, I don't believe. You see, in, in this passage, it's not about the church coercing its members to, to give up individual property rights. And in, in fact, it seems that individuals still own things. The, the things it says the things that belong to him. In other words, those, those things still belong to the person who has them. Barnabas is going to retain his property rights even after he's a part of the church. Ananias and Sapphira still own their things. This is not talking about some sort of radical political evolution of, of individuals' property rights. It's advocating in some ways something much more radical. It's advocating transformed hearts. It's advocating and describing transformed hearts out of which flow a generosity that is shocking in its expansiveness. 
as the early church begins to grasp the gospel and see one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, there is an expanding of what they view as their relational obligations to one another. And now, as they come into fellowship with one another, no longer are they saying, this is mine. They don't look at their stuff and say, this is mine. There's no sort of claiming the things of their own. They're seeing the things that God has granted them as means by which they can care for one another. The second temptation as we come to this passage is, is to underestimate the level of commitment. Here in this culture, there would have been a small number of people who had houses and property, maybe, maybe as few as, as 20% or, or 15%. And with this, this small group, instead of saying, okay, I recognize that I'm in a, a dangerous culture, that financial stability is, is something to be pursued, I need to cling to the things that I have, the people who have access to resources are immediately saying, okay, instead of, instead of guarding myself against the dangers of the future, right now I have the opportunity to take these things and care for others with whom are my brothers and sisters, and so I'm going to do that. I'm reading a, a book right now. Some parts of it are, are, are pretty interesting. Some parts are... Um, little dry for me. And the book is called Salt, A World History. Maybe I've, I've referenced this, this book before, but it's, it's more interesting than the title sounds, okay? So it's about salt, a world history of salt, and about the ways in which people's value of salt affected trade routes and affected, imp, uh, the, you know, the policy of different empires and wars and things like that. It's, it's very interesting. And here, at the end of the introduction, the writer concludes thusly, as he talks about all the different chaos that accompanied the, the salt trade. He says, Today, thousands of years of coveting, fighting over, hoarding, taxing, searching for salt appears picturesque and slightly foolish. So you, you talk about all the things people did to get salt, and it, it seems foolish now. But then he writes, The 17th century Briti British leaders who spoke with urgency about the dangerous national dependence on French sea salt seemed somehow more comic than contemporary leaders concerned with the dependence on foreign oil. In every age, people are certain that only the things they have deemed value have true value. Only the things they have deemed valuable have true value. The search for love and the search for wealth are always the two best stories. But while a love story is timeless, the story of a quest for wealth, given enough time, will always seem like the vain pursuit of a mirage. It's true, right? You hear about what other people used to value. Oh, they valued these, these rocks, or they valued this sort of agricultural commodity. They, they valued this, or they valued that. And you say, well, how, how foolish it would have been to, to fight over those things or to, to engage in a war over salt. And, and yet, given enough time, whatever it is that we deem valuable our pursuit of it is going to seem like a, a mirage. What does the early church understand here in this text? They understand the value of other believers. And they recognize the things that they have, the possessions that they have, are of, of little consequence in comparison to the souls of their brothers and sisters. And the result of that realization is, is a true working out of that belief by getting rid of the things that they have in order to pursue that which is more valuable. 
And what's the result? The result is a powerful testimony, verse 33 tells us. The, the, the fruit of the Spirit is being manifest, as, and, and the, the, the truth of the gospel is being lived out. Verse 33, or verse 33 says uh, there was great power, and their, their testimony of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and there's, there's great grace upon them all. Verse 34, again, there's not a needy person among them. It's, there's a fulfillment there of what was prophesied in Deuteronomy as, as the, the, the Messiah is, is reigning among his people. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, now notice this process, they, they sell them, then they bring the proceeds of what was sold, and they lay it down at the apostles' feet, and then it's distributed as any have need. So they, they sell, they bring, they lay it down in front of the apostles' feet, and then it's distributed. There's kind of that four-step process there, and, and what's happening as people are taking their resources, they're giving them to the church, and it's no individual receiving the glory. It's, it's the church, Christ, receiving the glory as his people in unity support one another. There's a lot to say there, but let's, let's move on. Then there's a specific example of, of Barnabas, and we'll talk more about Barnabas, Barnabas as we go through Acts, but there's this beautiful nickname that he has, son of, a, of encouragement. His real name is Joseph, and he's given the name Barnabas to denote this, this encouragement that he gives to others. They bear witness, the early church does, to the gospel by their actions. In fact, it's interesting, a few centuries later, in the fourth century, one of the Roman emperors is going to look at the charity that's practiced among the Christians, and he's going to chastise his own people. He's going to say, look, they are making us look bad because they take care of their people and they take care of our people too. We look, our religion looks worthless. Sacrificial sharing is the fruit that we see here believers bearing. Like all fruit of the Spirit, it strengthens, it grows the church. And, and bearing this type of fruit in the church is a testimony to the reality of our, of our faith and the glory of God. That's what should take place within a church where there are genuine believers. All right, let's look here at false believers. In verses 1 through 11 of chapter 5, here we see false believers producing poisonous fruit within the church. It begins, but, okay, so here's what's taken place with healthy believers, with in the, the, the story there of Barnabas, and, and now, though, we have a, a contrasting story, that the process is different. Instead of selling and bringing it and laying it down at the feed and then being distributed here, it's sold, and then the next, the next verb is it's, it's kept back. There's the word there that's, that's used refers to like financial fraud. There's some sort of deception taking place. And instead of bringing it and laying it down at the apostles' feet, Ananias with his wife Sapphira's knowledge brings part of it. They're trying to receive glory and exalt themselves while at the same time maintaining a, a possession of physical things. They, they don't want to honor God. They want to exalt themselves. There's this idolatrous intention. And Peter, look at the text, Peter, in verse 3, immediately shows an awareness of what's taken place. Remember, as, we've, as we go through the book of Acts, we see the, the Holy Spirit filling his people, the Holy Spirit filling his people here. Peter says, why has Satan filled your heart? To not, you're, not, you're not part of this participation in the Holy Spirit. You're, you're, you're lying to the Holy Spirit. You're keeping back part of yourself, the proceeds from the land. And then he affirms, look, while you had it, you could have done whatever you wanted with it. And it was, after it was sold, you didn't have to lie about it, is his point. 
But instead, you've, you've contrived this, this deed in your heart, and you've not lied to man, but to God. And God, in a very sobering and quick fashion, deals with this sin. Ananias dies. The text tells us that young men take him out and bury him. Then in, in walks, several hours later, his, his wife. And Peter engages in a conversation with her. And he says, look, and we'll talk more about this next week. How is it that you've, you've agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? The feet of those who buried your husband are at the door. They will carry you out. And she also, after, after she confirms that, this, that the, the price that her husband said the land was sold for and lied about, she confirms that lie. Peter says those words, and then she falls down at his feet. She breathes her last. The young men came in, they find her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And the text tells us right after Ananias dies and right after Sapphira dies, the text tells us these words. After Ananias it sa- dies, it says, great fear came upon all who heard of it. Verse 11, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. T- two questions I want us to consider here. First of all, was this an overreaction on God's part? I mean, the text doesn't explicitly say, and God struck them down dead, but there seems to be this clear connection between their committing sin and, and their death. There's a, there's a, certainly in the sense that God is sovereign over all things, he's removing those who are committed to this sin from his church. Is, is this an overreaction on God's part? What happens in a fleshly church? What happens in a church where it's not the Holy Spirit who is guiding the church and filling the believers within the church, but a church that's committed to the flesh? In a church that's committed to the flesh, here we see that the potential was self-glorification, deceit, As we go through other places in Scripture, we see, okay, what happens in a church where the flesh is in control? There's immorality. There's conflict. Sin spreads like gangrene. There's abusive leadership. There is unrestrained greed. There there are deeds of the flesh. The innocent are harmed. There is complete mission failure. Brothers and sisters in Christ, sin within the church is a big deal. Ananias and Sapphira don't demonstrate hearts of belief, and where hearts of belief are are present, there's going to be fruit that glorifies God. Where there are hearts of unbelief, where where the flesh is indulged, there's going to be fruit that is going to poison the church. Fruit that is from heart of unbelief reveals idolatrous, idolatrous desires that are incompatible with worship of God. The The purpose of the church, the mission of the church that we're talking about in the book of Acts cannot be pursued where the flesh reigns. The fruit is dangerous because it's deadly. It's deadly to our spiritual life. It's why Jesus said, look, it's better to, to cut off a hand than to, to, than to if, if, it, if the hand is going to cause you to stumble. It's, easier, it's better to, to cut out, to pluck out the eye if it's going to cause you to stumble. There's also a threat to, to physical life. 1 Corinthians 11 talks about why many of us are, are weak and, and ill and some have died those in the Corinth church. 1 Corinthians 5 talks about sin leading to, to physical death. And God here acts 
at the start of the church's mission in a dramatic way to protect the souls of those who are part of the church. And just as you might act in a dramatic fashion to to protect the lives of other people, here God acts in a dramatic fashion. Um, Imagine someone were to come into our church brandishing a firearm. I, I, I know... I know certain things about people in this church. I, I don't think that person who did that would, would fare well. Okay? That people would recognize that that represents a, a danger and it would, it, would be, it would be addressed. The same is true of our, our danger spiritually. In fact, there is a greater danger to us whenever sin creeps within the church because it's a danger not just to our physical bodies but to our very soul. When the church refuses to remove remove sin, we are creating an incredible danger for ourselves, for the children in our church, for our souls, for our witness to the unbeliever. So what's the benefit? Another question here. What's the benefit of removing sin? We'll talk more about this next week again, but, but just listen to some passages that describe the benefit of removing sin from within the church. First of all, there's a benefit to the, to the sinner. 1 Timothy 1.20, Paul says, I've, I've, uh, he talks about Hymenaeus and Alexander, the, who he says, I've handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. There's this idea that as he removes them from the fellowship of the church and turns them over and allows them to experience the consequence of their sin, they're, they're going to learn their, the, the reality of their sin. Hebrews 12 talks about how the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. 2 Thessalonians 3 talks about dealing with sin within a church, and he says, uh, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. In other words, remove him from, from calling him a brother or sister in Christ so that he may be ashamed so he can come back. He says, don't regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So, Dealing with sin is a benefit to the sinner. As you, as you recognize my sin and address that sin, it's a benefit to me and to my soul. There's also a benefit to the health of the church. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about sexual morality within the church and how it's being tolerated. And he says, look, it's a type of sin that's not even tolerated among pagans. He says, I, I'm writing to you, verse 11, not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or reviler, drunkard or swindler. Don't even, don't even eat with such a one. Don't even participate in the, the Lord's Supper, I, I think is what he's talking about there is, as you gather together. This is a person who is, who is not one of the church. And that for the health of the church, for the well-being of, of the pursuit of holiness, that person needs to be removed from fellowship. 1 Timothy 5, don't admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. And so as we deal with sin, we all recognize, okay, this this is not a way that's going to lead to life and joy. I, I need to fear that sin as well. It's similar to what's happening here in the book of Acts. And it's a testimony to the world as well as we deal with sin. There are numerous stories that we could all think of, even some from this, this, the past few weeks, of, of prominent evangelical Christian leaders involved in, in sin that is even shocking to the world. And the, and the presence of that sin and that refusal to be, to be grieved by that sin by the church harms the witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Next week, we're going to talk more about the process. How, how, how do we deal with sin within the church in, in a loving way that recognizes our love for the sinner, our love for the church, and our love ultimately, of course, for God? We'll, we'll, talk, we'll talk about that how next week. But as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together, what I want us to contemplate is, is the why do we need to do this? Do you recognize the incredible danger that sin presents to you, to your soul, and to the souls of those who you love? And do you recognize the great hatred that God has for sin? Sin is not something God winks at. It's not something God finds amusing. It's not something that God finds unimportant. The sin that we are sometimes tempted to treat so casually is the sin for which God the Father sent the Son to pay the penalty for. In other words, God takes sin very seriously, so seriously that he sent his Son, Jesus Christ, to, to bear the full penalty of sin. So he, he takes sin seriously, he judges it, and at the same time, he provides the means of salvation from it. And so we prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper. The church's removal of a person from fellowship is a gracious warning of God's judgment on sin and sinners. And yet, at the same time, as, as we think about God's dealing with sin, the ultimate judgment on sin, we rejoice. We rejoice because God provided a means of salvation for us. And a means of salvation for every person, every person who would turn away from sin Christ trusted in him alone for salvation. And let's just, let's take a moment and let's ask the Lord to give us an awareness of, of unrepentant sin in our own lives. Just, just take a moment and ask God to, to reveal the things in your life for which there has not yet been repentance. And maybe something will come immediately to mind. Maybe it'll take a few moments of of thinking about what other people have said to you and you know, maybe challenges that other believers have given you that you've been resistant to hearing. Just take a moment, and I want you to ask God to reveal unrepentant sin in your life, and then I want you to ask God to do something very scary, potentially very frightening. I want you to ask God to do whatever is necessary to help you repent of that sin. The church discipline process is a process by which the, the seriousness of sin continues to be revealed. There's a small confrontation, a larger loving confrontation, and then ultimately removal of fellowship from believers is a picture of, of ultimate eternal removal from, from the fellowship of Christ and his body. I want you to ask God right now, Lord, I, I don't want the ultimate judgment. I want to receive your loving forgiveness now, and I want you to ask God, Lord, do whatever is necessary for this, this sin to be dealt with and, and repented of. Let's pray that together now. Father, we confess our, our complacency toward sin. We are far too willing to tolerate sin in our life. 
love of material things, love of immorality, uh, lack of concern with anger, impatience, deceit. Father, we recognize that the blood of your son Jesus has dealt with all of these sins. And so we, we, we believe that for those of us who are genuine believers, you will produce your, your, the fruit of repentance within our hearts. And so, Father, we, we pray that you would do the things that are necessary to give us hearts of, of true repentance in our lives, the right conversations with people, the right, uh, the, the right exposure of sin. And, and, and Father, of course, our, our desire would be to experience the, the blessing of quick repentance. And so, Father, first grant us that. But, but, Father, barring that, do whatever is necessary in the life of this church to produce holiness, to produce true repentance. And, Father, work within our hearts by your grace so that we can pursue the joy of true fellowship with you. Help us to be gentle with those who struggle. We pray that our, our, our pursuit of holiness would not become a legalism, but it would be a, a, a spirit-fueled desire for the joy of all people in the presence of worshiping you. I pray that you would help us to receive repentant sinners gently, and I pray that for those of us who cling to sin, you would do whatever is necessary to remove the, the joy of that sin from us. For your glory, for our joy, we, we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.